Welcome to LD Disrupt, the podcast dedicated to helping you overcome workplace challenges and prepare for the future of work today. I'm your host, Nelson Sivlingham, and I'll be speaking with the movers, shakers, and path breakers in LD who are reshaping their organizations right now. Join us each week as we delve into the highs and lows of work in the industry to get to the real nitty gritty stuff that you actually care about. I know we have a lot of people who listen to the recording, so I just want to remind everyone that if you want to get a guide of the best lessons from the podcast so far, including one from Philip, uh, if you go to gethownow.com forward slash disrupt, which I will put in the chat in a second, and it will be in the show notes for today's episode, uh, that is a free guide that collates some of the best lessons we've learned from all the experts we've had in the show. Uh, There's 37 of them. um, And yeah, if you fill in the form on that page, gethownow.com forward slash disrupt, you will get it to your inbox. And I think without further ado, that means we can kick off today's show, Philip. So um, welcome. Thank you for for joining me for this conversation about all things human-centric learning. Um, The way we will structure today's conversation is we'll kind of set the ground rules for what a human-centric learning experience is, um, what do they look like, what stops us creating them normally, and then move into more of this chat about the role of AI, how that can be used in L&D. So um, yeah, Philip, welcome to the show. Like I said, it'd be cool to hear, because I know you have quite a varied background. You've worked in a lot of kind of different spaces that really complement L&D and uh, enablement. So it'd be cool to just hear a little bit about who you are and what your background is. Sure. Um, and thank you for having me. I'm uh, super happy uh, to be here. I'm uh, one of those people who have waited a decade uh, for AI to take the center stage. And uh, finally, it's here. So I'm very, very excited about that. Um, so a little bit about me. I have uh, I have a background uh, running um, L&D teams um, for a couple of years uh, for, for a couple of uh, different tech companies. Um, I've also done uh, management consulting, especially within talent management, leadership development, and uh, sales development. And um, I've actually done a little bit of everything. I've 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 been a designer as well, um, and uh, I I think that complements how I view L and D by you know wanting um, to design things that are as as functional as as they are um, pretty to look at. Um, I also have a, a background in psychology, um, and and a deep um, interest in in understanding how the human mind works. And which is fitting because we are talking about human-centric designs, and and I think psychology is all about understanding how humans um, work. It's actually how uh, I got into um, organizational psychology in in the first place, which is I read an article, an interview from Google. I was a product manager at Google, and he said um, Google was one of the companies that hired uh, most psychologists in the world, IO psychologists. And the reason for that is because they wanted to design products and services that adapt uh, to humans and not the other way around. And to me, that really summarizes what a human-centric design is all about. And and if you don't have a deep understanding of psychology, it's really hard to create a really human-centric approach um, to anything. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah. That's a great mantra, that one of building the experiences with the human in mind rather than trying to convert the person to use the tech in in the way the tech is designed. So, um, yeah, I love that. And I think that leads us nicely into kind of establishing a bit more what we mean by a human-centric learning experience. So, you know, what are the ground rules for that? How should they normally look when we're thinking this learning experience has to have the human at the core? 
Yeah, I think um, if you're trying to think of what is really human-centric learning, then um, you have to focus on something else rather than um, just the information and the content. Um, you would have to consider the individual, their needs, uh, their interests, and, and maybe even their lived uh, experiences. And uh, this is, of course, really, really difficult when you're trying to do things at scale because you have to try and find one-size-fits-all solutions. Um, but that's what being human-centric um, um, uh, means is that we have to go beyond that and try to um, find ways to adapt things to the actual humans that are that are learning the content. Yeah. And also, I think another point is that it recognizes that um, there's a uh, learning is also a social process. So uh, learners can benefit from interactions with others, collaboration, discussions, feedbacks from peers and instructors. It's also something that you can't get if you just, you know, if you're just putting out um, uh, content. We know, for example, that um, the retention rate of, of reading is 10% versus practice about 75%. Um, it doesn't mean that everything should be a practice, but at least um, there's a big difference um, um, to taking different approaches here. So that, yeah, so that's being human centric. Yeah. Yeah. And what are some of the examples, I guess, like what is, uh, if we were thinking about human-centric experiences you've seen work before and you kind of touched on a bit of social learning there but is there anything in particular that stands out to you like examples you've seen that work well or, or common traits i think the the things that are quite um common in lnd that works really well is the social element so when you have um, um cohorts that are learning together and, and moving forward in the topic together that is really powerful and there's elements of reflection in between and then discussions where you can, like sometimes, like let's say you're, you're learning about how to provide um, feedback. You can read about it, but then you, you might have a situation where you're wondering um, what does the theory say versus what does the culture say here? So so by creating that um, social environment, there's there's an element of learning from, from others and, and understanding what is acceptable within the group as well. And that works really, really well. Yeah, I think what you, a lot of what you just mentioned there is kind of about mirroring existing organic behavior as much as possible, right? Like, like you said, if we work on a project together, if it's just me and a friend and, and they have a business, for example, we will sit down and kind of go through that feedback process and like uh, debrief the next day or whatever, if we do an event, something like that. So it's a good starting point for some people if they have if they're trying to like get into this for the first time to maybe look at existing behavior among the people in their teams, how they already learn. And like you said, with the Google example, try and go with what's already organically happening. I'd say that's the easiest way to get into, especially using um, existing AI tools. So I think that there's, there's two ways to think of the, the possibility of incorporating AI, which one is that you do what you're already doing um, but you're able to do it faster, cheaper, and, and more scalable. Um, and then the other option is that what can't you do today because of resource limitations, time limitations, other limitations um, that you could potentially be doing if you incorporated AI. But certainly the easiest way is to, um, the things that, that you're usually doing today, which is um, you have to uh, define what the outcome is that you want. You have to be able to assess the problems and the situations that you want to solve for the gaps within the organization. 
And you have to be able to uh, realize it and implement um, your ideas and your solutions. And all of those things are still the same, uh, and, and but you can do it faster uh, and better uh, in some cases with AI. Yeah. And part of that that you just spoke about there is this idea of tapping into people's motivations or their pain points and goals. And I think sometimes what miss, what's missing from this human-centric conversation is the context angle. So for example, if we think human-centric learning, we might go straight to um, learner preferences or learning styles, or how do we best give feedback to people? But context is very much part of the conversation as well, isn't it? Because we, if we create experiences, learning experiences, they need to think about how and where is this going to be applied and what's the goal that someone's trying to get to? So I guess it's maybe a wider thing than just on a personal level. How does this person work? It's also what are they trying to get to? What's stopping them getting there? And like, what is the context of, of how that journey happens? Yeah, uh, I agree completely. I, I, For example, me personally, I, I, I don't believe in uh, learning styles. I know a lot of people talk about that, but there's also a lot of research showing that you're not, just because you prefer something doesn't mean that you're actually more effective in learning it. Um, however, um, um, a great example of context could be that you're learning things that you don't need to apply. Um, so maybe you don't need it right now. You need the information six months later. Uh, and, and can you, so can you provide the information or the learning at the right time? Um, um, that's a great context, uh, to have, uh, for example. So, um, being able to provide, uh, content, uh, at scale and at the right time, um, is, is, I would say equally as important as, as, as just tailoring to the individual. Yeah, there's an interesting part that I hadn't thought about before there, but when we say human-centric, we often think of the person is happy, uh, we have a great relationship with the person, but, you know, like when you're a kid, there's some things that you prefer to do and you want to do, but your parents give you that tough love because you that's what's going to be better for you in the long term. So I guess there's this element as well that maybe there will be friction as well in a human-centric learning experience because there's friction anyway between our actions and outcomes, how we interact with people. Is that something you've seen as well in the past? Well, I think that's a great example. It's, it's similar to how, if you think about employee engagement service that we design uh, in the workplace where um, some people might want to think of it as make all employees happy all of the time. Um, while the, the purpose of the engagement survey is to create commitment and engagement at, at, at the company level. And, uh, uh, and, and if our job is to, like the job of the LMD is to accelerate execution and performance. And so when you're thinking about human-centric approaches, it's about how do we create moments and programs that helps us um, um, improve performance faster for people. And that will in turn make people ha more happier um, instead of thinking like, you know, what do people want to learn and then give them everything they want. No, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'd love to know in the chat, actually, of how people see this, um, whether they've seen it happen before that um, the preferences aren't the thing that drives the best outcomes or how you've kind of approached that in, in the past as well. I guess another part of it is of it, we talked about what an experience is when it's human centric, um, how we need to use context. And the other thing is that we need to design systems to be human-centric as well. So you mentioned this point to me before that often uh, we build content with people in mind, but sometimes people might neglect the system. So for example, we know that people spend hours looking for content and can't find it. And that's often an indication that people have a desire to learn, but the system isn't allowing them to find 
the content. So how can we kind of also approach systems with this human-centric mindset? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great example. I I think that um, I mean so so there's there's research showing that um, uh, you know up to um, two three hours per day is spent on average for an employee to just wait for information to come to them or um, for them to search for information. So there's a lot of uh, um, um, wasted productivity by by not having access to the right information that you're looking for, and and because in L and D we we are uh, that gap in providing both training and information sometimes that could be something that we could think about like what when people need to find stuff, um, where are they looking for that? Because the behavior is there. Like we we know that people are spending hours looking for things. Where are they looking for it? Who are they asking? Um, and and do we ha- do we have a solution today? Maybe we have. Let's take a normal example. We we have an LMS, and we put stuff in the LMS, and then we have maybe um, Google Docs and Google uh, presentation slides and everything that we. So we put information everywhere, and then it's in. It's, it makes it very, very difficult for people to jump in between uh, different um, uh, systems. Um, I, I like to think of this example where, you know, when you're um, trying to buy something online and you're, so you're shopping and, and and then you go to the checkout and you want to pay for it. And then you realize that your credit card is in another room in the house and you just put down the phone because you're like, you, you can't be bothered by you know standing up and go to the other room and pick up the card. So that's how like the, even the slightest friction can change your behavior. So think about how much friction your organization has, how many different systems do you have? Where is the information um, 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 managed? And, and how do you think about knowledge management in general? Like how easy is it to find stuff? How easy it is to ask people what is the culture of, of asking and, and getting information, et cetera? And, and this is, of course, something that, you know, is very exciting about with, with AI um, that could potentially help us um, solve this problem. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone who joined or listened to last week's episode, we had a, a similar conversation about human nature is to find the path of least resistance. And like you said there, even like minimal friction can deter us from persisting. And, and it will happen, like you said, if we're ordering something online. If we're trying to uh, learn or find a resource in the in the flow of work, all these little moments of friction could actually deter someone. So, um, yeah, I guess that is part of it as well, isn't it? Thinking about removing friction for people, so we can enable that human nature to to find the path of least resistance. Uh, another interesting thing I just wanted to chat about on the other side of it is how can we? Are there any telltale signs that a learning experience hasn't been designed with people in mind? Like, are there any common feedbacks we're going to get? Any common outcomes that show actually this piece of content or this course hasn't been structured with the the person at the heart? <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a couple of ones that I I, I think are quite common. One is um, I've never heard about that or I've never seen it. Um, another one could be I did it, but I don't remember or I didn't understand it, and I I have to ask. So you have to ask a bunch of follow up questions after um, doing the training. Um, uh, or it could be um, um, uh, simply that you have to force people to do it. Like they don't want to do it. Like whatever you, like you have to incentivize people so much to do it that it's crazy. Like, and then you could, if you have such a situation, you could think of like yourself, like if you would sell this externally, would people do it? Like if you would sell it for a hundred dollars, would people buy it? 
Um, and if not, then, then um, you know, you have to rethink, you might have to rethink your designs. Cool. Yeah, yeah I agree. I think it's um, human centric is, is partly remembering that humans are fallible. So uh, it's not always about knowing everything. Everything is about knowing where to find it. It's not about um, sometimes completing the content. It's about knowing it's there. You know, like we have all these kind of blind spots that naturally as people where over time we forget where things are or we can't remember exactly. So, um, yeah, I think that's a useful um, piece of context. We have a couple of good comments in the chat as well. People agree in a little bit around this um this idea of preferences or like what's good for people and um, JS talking about uh, connecting it to people's intrinsic motivations to maybe um, provide a better incentive and also the outcome being the main thing over um, over other things. So yeah, thanks for leaving those comments in the chat. Um, we're going to move on now to more of this kind of like AI part of the conversation, uh, which I know probably a lot of people are looking forward to. So a reminder, if you join late, feel free to leave any questions in the chat as they pop up. But uh, Philip, I've got like a tally going every week. People are asking me how I'm using AI to create content. And at the heart of the question is always like, am I using it to create more content? And I'm seeing a similar thing in the L&D space where people are talking about using AI, but they're always talking about more. And as we know, creating more doesn't mean it's going to be better. And that's this, the kind of friction I'm having from a, a marketing perspective. But Overall, what are kind of your views on how L&D teams can and should be using AI um, to kind of uh, either engage people or progress towards their goals? Yeah, I, I think it's important to, to know where I'm coming from, where I, I'm, I'm very optimistic and very positive about um, using AI. And um, so even though it, I, I believe that everything should you know, have a human-centric uh, perspective, it's still so vastly powerful that I think it will become the norm. So, so if you're not using it, I think that um, from my side, L&D professionals, uh, I don't think they will be replaced by AI, but I think L&D professionals who use AI will replace people that doesn't. Um, and I think that um, I agree that it's it's not like if you have, if, if you're running a team um, or your team is lacking um, the right skills, and you don't have um, the right strategy, like using AI will just, I think, uh, exacerbate all of your flaws. Uh, so you will create more problems rather than solving uh, problems. Uh, so it, you have to be careful that way with just generating um, content. Um, but with that said, um, like we talked about before, like if you think about the, the stuff that L&D does really, really great, which is identifying what problems to solve and then creating solutions that can train people to, to fix that gap and ex accelerate execution, um, then be able to uh, define what the outcome should be like, be able to assess the right problems uh, and then to realize it. That you can use uh, for AI, like to generate, uh, for example, um, if you're doing a survey, for example, be able to brainstorm and generate questions faster and, and better questions, better and different ways to phrase it, that that's something that you can use an AI for. Um, be able to um, be more specific about the outcome. And, and, and again, like have brainstorming together with an AI can, can help you uh, work faster. Um, if you, for example, are designing, um, if you're using in, in learning design and you have different, um, you have to write stories and scenarios, uh, again, 
the AI can, and whatever system you use, they can help you write, you know, with perfect grammar, perfect English, as long as you're really, really good at, at prompting the AI. Um, so writing scenarios and stories is perfect. Like writing questions and options for questions and answers is also a, a great way of using it. Um, writing a particular piece with a particular tone. Um, and, uh, you know, I get this question sometimes that, you know, AI is, if you use a lot of AI, it won't feel as authentic. It won't feel like a person um, is, is providing the content. But if you have you ever like have you ever read any corporate websites like it doesn't like all of those are made by humans and they don't feel like any human whatsoever and and if you read like newsletters from companies and so on it doesn't feel human um, so I, I don't buy that that um, I, of course if you're generating a lot of generic content it won't feel very human centric but if you are if you know what problem you're solving. What gaps needs to be you know needs to be addressed? Then using it for this to to write specific things, to write specific questions, then it could be great. Yeah, um, you can also use it to verify. Like if you're if you're unsure about your skills, like if you need to draw up outlines and lesson plans and 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 pathways, like that's AI can do that amazingly well. Um, proofreading, like you don't even need to do that anymore. Like that's. <laughs> summarizing um um i had i had a training on negotiation for example where we did the whole training but we didn't have a good intro so we just you know we used an ai to to uh, write a really really good intro and it was better than what we had so um again like um writing specific pieces and adding it to your content that it will do um perfectly well yeah no i agree there's so many interesting things and we'll, we'll pick up on a few in detail but i mean it's a great point as well uh, I know they've been doing these sort of blind tests where they try and get people to guess if something's written by AI or people. And actually, very often, it's hard to tell. And you're right, actually. I mean, if you go to like 80% of websites and look at that little three-line thing at the top, I have no idea what most of these companies do a lot of the time. So because they're not writing it like a human, are they? So it's a, it's a bit of a nightmare on that one. But I guess the most interesting point there is that if you're if you don't have the fundamentals in place, then you're only you're just going to scale your problems, like you said, right? If we talk about the the thing of uh, that we spoke about earlier, discoverability is a problem. Well, if we just scale content creation, we only exacerbate the problem of discoverability. Or if uh, all of our resources are not specific, they tackle like ten subjects, and then we write our prompts to tackle ten subjects. Well, we're just going to scale the amount of content that's ambiguous that people can't use. So, um, yeah, is it kind of as simple as before you even get into this point of maybe testing out AI, you just make sure you have all your ducks in a row, all your principles are right, you're operating with the same, like the core fundamentals that will make you successful? Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, uh, AI won't replace a really good L&D strategy. So you still need to do uh, get your strategy uh, right. Uh, although AI can help you define your LD um, strategy, um, you I can I think if you if you Google LD strategy and AI, you will see examples of how people have used AI to give different problems to actually help them define and um, and summarize their, their strategy and, and create their strategies. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, your you know your fundamentals, like for example, if you if you're focusing on um, the the learner experience and the employee experience, and you're using design thinking as one of your core principles uh, to to design your trainings, and you're using agile principles to to design and iterate, 
um, then adding AI to the mix will just make you, uh, you know, it will create a superpower for you. Like I've seen examples where like, are you familiar with uh, design sprints? Um, yeah. That's by Jake Knapp, yeah, from Google. Um, so normally that takes five days to do. And that's amazingly fast to be able to prototype and then test something with real users in five days. I've seen people do it with AI in four hours instead of five days. So you can replace some of those elements where it's just about brainstorming and, and moving forward and summarizing and analyzing. Like you can add to your processes that already works uh, and then you can, you know, you can make them substantially faster. Yeah, I think that leads us nicely to the next topic we wanted to get into, which was, I guess, the mindset of approaching how you use AI. And one of the things being, can it help us test ideas at scale and test ideas faster without investing a huge amount of resources into it? So, you know, say a big problem for us is the amount of deals we close. Could we test whether content around enablement works by creating stuff quickly using AI and then rolling it out to the team rather than, like you said, this what would be potentially a five or a 10 or a 15 day process to get that to them. Is that kind of, do you see that as well? It's a useful way for us to test. Absolutely. Um, and the whole testing uh, process, which is um, be able to um, create, I mean, you can create um, different customer profiles, uh, personas, like um, uh, to be able to test it against them. Like the AI can do all of those things already today and um so definitely the whole idea around like brainstorming and testing um at scale um is really works well um with ai yeah and i guess the other thing as well is um we still need to set the same principles like we spoke about principles before but it's how are we going to measure if the test works um how well are we writing the prompt for the test, right? How much detail is in that? How much are we thinking about the context again of where this is going to be applied? So are there any kind of best practices for testing content you create with AI or testing other things you scale, scale with AI um, that you can think of or, or kind of, um, yeah, I guess it's like either core principles or best practices people can follow if they are going to test with AI. Yeah. I'd, I'd say, first of all, I'd just say that this is um, still fairly new. So you will have to live with a lot of experimentation uh, when you do it. But there are a couple of things that might help you, regardless of, of which um, system you use, which is that whenever you're using AI to, to generate, whether it's uh, content or um, brainstorming or other otherwise, um, you have to be very, very specific about what you want as the output. Like you can... You can prompt the AI which format and which you know way you would like it to give you the information. Um, you also need to give it as much context as possible. You can almost tell it you're the CEO of this company. You're you know this is what's happening. Um, you can tell it you know the target group and the audiences. Um, you can give it. Uh, a specific role to the AI, I can, like I just said, like you can tell it to be the CEO, you can tell it to be the facilitator, you can tell it to be someone else. Um, you can also pay very, very close attention to the verbs that you're using. So sometimes when you're not getting the right output, you can change the verbs. So use a thesaur thesaurus um, to just change out the verbs to see if you can get a different output from the AI, um, since it listens very closely to verbs. Uh, another thing is that you can uh, try um, um, 
uh, chained um, prompting, uh, which involves like breaking like complex tasks into several like intermediate uh, steps um, so that it can uh, generate more concrete examples for each step instead of like telling it to do the whole thing, like you break it down to different uh, blocks and then it will be able to generate those uh, as a chained uh, command instead. Yeah, yeah, I love that last point because we know that a problem is often that the right information is buried within like a huge PDF or like a long video or something like that. So breaking down the prompts, I guess as well, it leads us nicely to sense checking content. So, you know, like we, we know like anything, it's not a silver bullet. It's not just going to spit out the perfect, perfectly formed piece of content every time, is it? So like you said, maybe we need to go back in and change verbs. Maybe we need to add more detail around what the role or the problem someone's facing is or the outcome we want it to achieve. So, um, yeah, I guess it, you have any thoughts on that around sense checking content? When do we know if that content's ready to go out and test with other people? Um, I think, I mean, I think you summarized this uh, well enough. Um, it's, um, I think, I mean, the sense checking you can do sort of do um, yourself mostly after the, the, but the, I think the, the usefulness of the AI is, is around um, the, the, the first steps of, of um, making sure that you have uh, end up in a place where you have something to show someone else, um, whether that's a process or a content um, and then this is, I think this is where L&D is still really, really important. Like you need to sense, you need to be able to look at it and see, is this really, really good? Like you could basically, I mean, you could just, you could design a, you know, a, a you know, product, um, market rollout in, in, uh, 30 minutes, but you still need to be able to look at it and say, if it's, if it's good enough, uh, to, to go out and test, be tested in the real world. Yeah. And I think part of the equation, I guess, is that. AI is using existing content to kind of predict what's going to be useful, but that doesn't mean that, although probably has a high success rate, it doesn't mean every time you get it, it's going to nail it. So you might need to add your own context into it. You might need to see if it works and then come back and iterate again, I guess. Yeah, I I agree. Um, although it's it's not as like I, I also want to point out like some of the stuff that we're seeing already today is very, very, very close to magic. Like it's it's almost impossible to tell, like, um, could a human have done this even better? I love the example that I saw, I think it was last week, where um someone took his dog uh, to the vet and the vet gave I, I see you smile because you might have seen this example where and, and the vet couldn't help the dog and so the dog was was slowly dying and so what this guy did is that he he thought about like who is very very good at analyzing a lot of information so he took all the test results of the dog all the context uh, about the dog gave it to chat gpt and then um asked chat gpt what sort of you know what what could this be uh and then um it gave him four different conditions and then it took it back to a different vet and asked if this could be the right uh, condition and it was and and then they they were able to save the dog um and you know just tells you how how you know although it, that's not you know uh, chat gpt is is not a clinical physician um, but it was able to do something that even you know uh, human experts could not do I hadn't heard that example actually. That is, uh, I'm glad it had a happy ending as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, you, but you could imagine, like, if you have uh, engagement survey data points, you yeah. have performance data points, you have different contexts from the organization, and you're trying to think about how do we solve this. 
Like who is really, really good at taking all of this information and then give you uh, an output of like suggestions of what could this, what, what could be the root cause? Um, like if you want to do that really, really fast and, and traditionally, you you know, if you're a management consulting firm, you've had junior consultants doing, uh, going through um, um, a bunch of Excel spreadsheets uh, and writing uh, briefs and docs and so on. Like you could do that in, in minutes uh, instead of having teams doing those things. It's an interesting point because so often LNT teams are small or it's one person and it means like like anyone who's in a one-person team, we have blind spots or things we don't have time to do or the skill sets to do. And actually, everything we spoke about so far kind of lean towards creating. But like you say, it could be analysis. It could be plugging a skills gap. So you know, like you said, we have this huge amount of data we can't analyze. Well, if we input it to an AI tool, can it suggest something back to us? Or if copywriting is kind of not our strong suit, you know, can we just put in the raw ingredients and see what comes back to us? So I guess, do you see it as a useful tool for... I guess small L and D teams, or particularly time-consuming tasks. Like, where is actually the pain point? I guess it solves for an L and D professional. I, I mean, I think it um, sort of um, almost democratizes uh, L and D teams between like big uh, L and D teams from big corporations to small L and D teams, who now um, can can add a, a different level of skill set and speed that they could not uh, do before. It, it just comes back to how much you're able to imagine and, and dream of solutions that you could do. Um, I mean, you could, uh, you could let's say you're looking at compliance data and you could look at the amount of offense and, and the, the, um, the, the quiz data from, from your trainings, uh, the, the, you know, um, acceptance rate from people doing participation rate all, and you could ask the ai to analyze if you have potential gaps and problems in your content um so that you probably could like you couldn't even dream of doing that if you were a super small team you just don't have time for stuff like that now you can build like real quality processes into all of your um, um areas uh without having adding you know those profiles and skill sets um, to your team if you know how to prompt them and, and build them yeah, and there's a great example, actually, Kimberly just sharing in the chat that um, she's a one-person team um, and, you know, tools like ChatGPT are helping her fill maybe gaps where she maybe is lacking knowledge or or some sort of um, a particular skill. And then she's just reminding people it's important to sense check that, though, before you, you do scale it out. Uh, and then just a question that came through in the chat as well, Philip, are there any sort of AI tools you recommend to get started with if you're kind of not already leveraging anything from an L&D perspective? Um, I don't think I, I um, um, would like to mention any specific uh, names. Uh, obviously, um, the, the most famous one right now is OpenAI and, and ChatGPT, and that one is really, really powerful. And most services that you use is built upon OpenAI, so you, it's almost like everything comes back to OpenAI. But you'll see that um, different companies will have a different take on on how to utilize um, ChatGPT. Um, so if you, uh, so I think depending on the purpose of what you're trying to do, um, you'll find different tools that are specialized in, in making that even even experience even better than ChatGPT. Cool. Yeah, I think it's like we spoke about earlier. Look at the the core principles of the tool. What does it do? Is it going to align with what your goals are and then and then try and tap into that and scale it rather than, I guess, um, 
aiming for a particular tool just because other people use it, which is sometimes what we see being a problem in, in LND generally, isn't it? People um, just start using a particular tool or doing a particular thing because other people are doing it. So yeah, I really like that, um, that kind of reminder. I know an interesting thing here is, and I feel actually like my the conversation so far has twisted my perspective on this question that I wanted to ask you anyway, but we don't want L&D to become kind of like a faceless, kind of cold, not very warm function, right? Like we had a good conversation ages ago about keeping the human in HR. Um, I wonder if there's a similar thing here because I read quite a few articles before today about chat GPT and L&D. And, and one of the common themes was using it to provide feedback. And I can understand, given the conversation so far, where that's useful, but you also don't want to get to this point where you're prioritizing saving time and efficiency over relationships. Because if I asked you to do a 10-hour course and then I use a tool to provide the feedback, it, it, does it feel a little bit like I'm devaluing your, your time or the effort you've put in? So um, I'm curious, just generally speaking, do you do you see that as a concern, L&D losing that like warm and fuzziness by automating too much? I, I think you're asking the wrong person. I, I'd like to see less of my face as much as possible. Um, <clears throat> I, you know, one of the reasons why I've waited for this, for AI to take the center stage for 10 years is because I, I ran a coaching program 10 years ago and I, um, I um, collaborated with a, a company that was, we were just having a conversation about what AI could potentially do for their platform. Um, and they had a guy who was just about to start um, uh, uh, starting his AI education at Stanford. And, and so what they helped us do was that um, we, we had coaching training with our managers. And then afterwards, we knew that the problem was that to follow up uh, and make sure that they actually um, use those new uh, skill sets and, and implement it into the culture that, that we wanted to coach employees and, and, and follow up on it. Um, we needed, uh, we couldn't just continue to run very, very expensive sessions. And also, fly people from all over the world to these sessions continuously uh, as we were not big enough to have like training teams in each continent. Um, but we, and we weren't small enough um, uh, to not do anything. So we had to, to fly people. Um, uh, but, but doing multiple sessions with the same people was just like, wasn't scalable, not for environment and, and, and not for us as a company. And so this tool in particular helped us, um, to follow up with each individual by asking them coaching questions uh, to see if they got stuck anywhere, uh, if there was something that they couldn't do. Um, and uh, we were too early. Like we really liked the idea and we wanted to try it. We it, This was the closest thing to AI that we had back then. And um, it that was really faceless. That was too faceless where uh, you felt like you were talking to nobody. And so the, 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 the automated tool would ask you a bunch of coaching, really, really good coaching questions. And then you as a manager would type something back and then you would get some sort of uh, generic feedback based on your response. And it didn't feel right. It didn't feel like you want, like you didn't want to put in more information because you didn't get as much back. What you want is a situation on a product where um, if you're going to use AI to provide feedback, you want if I give you something, I want 2x back. So if I take the time to give you, and I know that it's a robot, it has to be 2x, 3x, 4x back in value. And so think of it as, as I don't think it will replace and make uh, L&D uh, faceless. Um, you'll still have high value programs. You'll still, like, you won't do AI with all these executive programs and so on. 
But if you're thinking about like, let's say you have 500 managers, um, you won't be able to train all of them properly um, over the course of a year. So you can do stuff that you haven't been able to do at all. And that's where, um, if, if you think about the best case example that I can think of right now is the one is, is Camigo from Khan Academy, where um, their AI can now give personalized feedback and so if you have something that you're trying to, let's say you're, you've you just done a course on radical candor uh, and, and you want to see if people are able to give um, feedback. And then they have specific scenarios where they want to ask, like, could I say this in a situation? Uh, what do you think? This is something that you would want to cover in a group conversation. But let's say you don't have access to that over the course of the year, but you could you could ask someone, an AI to do that. And then you could get a tailored answer based on that con- context that would be so much better than nothing at all. Uh, then, then you telling someone to go to an FAQ or take the course again, or like that is so such a much better experience if if you have a product similar to that. No, I totally agree. It's interesting. I guess it, there's a, a principle running through all of this, which is about using it intentionally and establishing where you need a human touch. But then there's also that angle of if we're a small team or like you said that we have hundreds of managers is there a way we can do this consistently right so like an example that i've given on the show before was walmart had like sixty thousand managers across america and they were trying to get uh give them guidance on how to order from suppliers who were the most environmentally friendly so although they did this manually they created this scorecard that allowed people to yes or no whether they should use a supplier and that's something you could scale with ai right like what's a common theme across a huge group of people how can we solve that by using ai to scale the answer i guess yeah Another area that I'd like to add, if in case there are any business owners in here who are thinking about implementing AI um, to uh, their products that I wished existed already today uh, at a level where it's good enough. Um, so if you're thinking about like when you're trying to learn stuff yourself and, and especially if it's self-directed um, learning and you're reading and you're watching content, whatever it is that makes you motivated to do so, like it feels quite natural and it feels um, um, inspiring to do it. But whenever a company asks you to do uh, trainings, there's also this often when we design um, stuff that is very, very similar to e-learning, like there's a bunch of content and there's a lot of questions and quizzes and multiple choice. And I've never seen a training with, you know, a lot of multiple choice questions that feel like this is, this is so inspiring. I, I wish I could do this more. I wish I had more of this. Um, and so it feels like the reason why we have multiple choice questions is because we don't have anything else. Like we don't have anything else for you to stop and think uh, and test yourself. But if you had, uh, for example, open-ended questions um, or scenarios where anyone could just type anything based on how they reflect and, and think about that situation, and the AI could take that content and give you personalized feedback, that's what Camigo at Khan Academy is doing right now. Um, and if we had something similar in a corporate environment, we could remove some of the bo- really, really boring elements like multiple choice questions. Like, um, I, I don't know if uh, anybody disagrees with me. If, if anyone has done a bunch of trainings with multiple choice questions, have gotten great feedback. Like I wish we had more multiple choice questions in all of our trainings. Uh, very rarely, I would imagine. Uh, <laughs> and and like, again, it just... 
uh, you know you can go back and repeat a multiple choice question, right? So it kind of devalues the the, the whole point of it, doesn't it? Um, you made a really interesting point there. I guess we're kind of at a crossroads between we have these tools now that are accessible to us and sometimes we're stuck in these old ways that no longer work. So is this kind of a good point for us to reflect and go, this no longer serves us, this actually does work? What does our data tell us about what helps people transfer knowledge into their role and therefore be successful? Is that kind of a good opportunity for us to like take stock of what actually still serves us and where maybe AI could come in and just replace some of these things that no longer really um, are fit for purpose? Um, yeah, I think that uh, uh, we're probably very, very close to uh, an inflection point. Um, so uh, authoring tools, for example, will change uh, dramatically. Like an authoring tool without generative AI um, will, I, I don't think that will no longer have a place uh, almost because um, it will just be like um, doing math without a calculator. I wonder if it will change as well a little bit the skill set that we we require as well. I mean, for me personally, as a marketing professional, it's definitely going to change my skill set. Maybe from um, the quality of my editing might need to improve, right? Because I'll um, be prompting the tool, getting content back, and I'll need to edit it and make sure it fits the purpose and the quality of my briefing would be the same thing, right? I need to improve my skill set of briefing something so that what the content I get back. Can you see any similar parallels with L and D? Will it will it influence the skills that people need moving forward? Yeah, yeah. I think I I mean it has always been a changing environment. Like if you just think about a couple of years back uh in L and D, like how many digital tools that we are using now, how much um, LMSs and LXPs and how much those systems have changed. Uh, how much automation had taken place in our field that did not exist uh, previously. And, and, and now we're adding um, AI to the layer. And so I think the, the, the first thing that uh, as a skill set that you will need is how to understand how to prompt an AI, like how to work with an AI, um, because it, it, it just generates like vastly different outputs depending on what you tell it to do. So if you don't know how to use it, you'll still get um, um, uh, yeah, you'll still get bad content, bad output if you don't know how to prompt it correctly. Yeah, and I guess we spoke about it a little bit earlier, but I'd like to get into those kind of best practices or, or ground rules for a good brief. But I just want to remind people that we're sort of 10 minutes before the end. And if you have any questions, feel free to drop them in the chat now. But if you had to give people sort of two or three um, pieces of advice or, or steps to follow when they're writing a prompt, um, what would those be? Uh, uh, just thinking if I have anything else besides what I said before, which is um, be a, a, um, extremely specific. Um, although like most tools are, are very chat-like, um, they, they still are listening to specific um, words that you're typing. Um, but you can you, so use natural language, but be very, very specific about what you want, which format you want the output to be in, uh, what exactly you want as the output. So be clear about like, do you want it um, to focus in a specific a specific area? Um, do you want three bullet points, five bullet points? Do you like what do you want as an output for it to be successful? Um, give it as much uh, context uh, as possible. Um, the situation, the company, whatever it you can tell them. 
Uh, also tell it what to avoid. Like what do you don't what don't you want it uh, to do? Um, define its role. Like if you want it to to be a certain um, a certain person or, or or think of something from a certain perspective. Um, yeah, think of your target group. Like what is the target group of your content? Um, uh, that might also impact the format. Like, do you want a newsletter? Do you want a blog post? Do you want an e-learning? Do you, like, what do you want? Um, use, when something becomes too complex, use um, chain prompting. So split it up. So first, uh, part one, do this. Part two, do that. Part three, do this. And then my last tip was um, pay attention to the verbs. So when it doesn't work, change the verbs to something different to see if you get a different output. Yeah, there's two things there, actually, that really relate back to this human-centric idea. And one is thinking about the format. Because if we're thinking about the context of where something needs to be applied, then we have to think about what is the person at the other end going to be doing when they try and apply this, right? So if we need it to be a walkthrough, then we need to specify that in the prompt because we know this person's going to be following the instruction in real time. And as part of that as well, language, you need to use the language of your end users. So if people are coming to you and saying that they have a problem uh, closing deals, right? And that's how they phrase it. Whereas you use some sort of maybe acronym or very corporate formal term, that will probably influence the um, usefulness of the content to the end user. I don't know if you agree, but this is something I've been thinking about on this topic. I think that comes back to uh, our um, topic of today, which is human-centric. So when you're doing your research, um, when you're defining the outcome and, and assessing, especially the, the second step, assessing the current state, um, go really deep uh, in understanding like who are the people that you're dealing with and, and what are their problems like. And, and we used to, like, I think when you're working with um if you're a salesperson, you're working with customers, they usually call it like a customer centric or customer obsession. And um, for us, it's learner obsession, like understanding what are the obstacles and challenges to learning the content and then be able to um, tailor the content towards. I think that goes even once, I think someone mentioned before that um, tapping into intrinsic motivation, uh, that is really helpful. Um, but it's even, I think it's, uh, this is a different layer where you're designing the whole thing based on understanding, um, what the difficulties, challenges, and, uh, the, uh, interesting motivations of the, per of the people that are going through it. Yeah, um, I totally agree. And actually to an interesting concept here is that we view it as something that saves us time or energy, but what we need to make sure is that we don't then skip the time and effort we put into other parts. So we, we talked about the prompts already. We talked about the analysis. We talked about understanding the problem. It's, I guess it's important to not get in like a hamster wheel. Like just because the content churns out quickly doesn't mean we should spend a small amount of time on the brief or a small amount of time on the analysis or the iteration, right? So maybe mindset is quite an important thing here. Yeah, if you, if you, I mean, this is. I think most people on this call they um, they they know this really well already. But if you if you don't know what problems you're solving for, like generating more content isn't isn't going um, to help. So I think you can be quite comfortable with AI not replacing you completely, uh, or not being close to replacing you, and your skill sets and being able to identify. Uh, the root causes, uh, performance issues, and, and, and gap analysis, all of that is still on you, but you can do it just 10 times faster. 
Yeah, and that lets you test faster, iterate better, solve problems more efficiently because you can do those those other things. So yeah, I think viewing it not as a competitor, but something that's going to give you time you can focus on the other things that will make you really good at your job, really. I think even like in some some if you're a really small team, like in some cases, you might have avoided doing some of these things because of time issues. And now you don't have an excuse anymore. So now you can actually act like you're a big team. Yeah. How often do we hear that time is the the uh, the issue? And if you're able to use AI to save yourself time that then drives more impact, you build a better business case for what you do as a function. So there's a lot of these carryover benefits if you're able to use AI quite intentionally in what you do as an L&D team. I like the, um, uh, there's a quote from Megan Anderson. She She's the CMO of, of Jasper, Jasper AI. And she said, uh, AI has done the impossible and, and given us seconds and hours back and days back into our lives. And so what we do with it is is on us. And that is not a, uh, it's not a technical choice, but a human one. That's a lovely uh, way of putting it. Uh, we're really close to the end now, Philip, and I know people will need to, to kind of drop off, but is there anything we kind of missed that you, you think is worth flagging or any sort of final thoughts that we didn't maybe cover today that you'd like to share with people? Um, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I think that, well, uh, one thing, which is that I, uh, you know, I, I'm so excited about this topic. I want everyone who uh, started out to, you know, uh, dream as big as possible. Like there's, so much possibilities uh, with this technology that we still haven't seen. And it's, I mean, it's up to us in L&D to think of and dream of the things that it can be done so that, um, um, so that we can build it. But uh, right now it's, I think the biggest constraint is just our imagination. Yeah. And I guess just a final follow-up question, how much of that is about ditching assumptions and leaving behind? This is the way we've always done things because if you assume that something already works or doesn't work, you won't test it to its full capabilities. If you have this unmovable faith that something is the right way to do things, you also won't test this. And we know that often early adopters are people who win, right? Like if you were the first one, the first people to get uh, get on TikTok and understand the algorithm, then that gives you a great head start to to one up other people, right? So as part of it, just to go in there with no assumptions, have an open mind and, and try and really think big. I agree. I couldn't agree more. I think that um, if you, like I said before, I think what we're seeing right now is very, very close to magic. And uh, um, I think your assumptions, if you, if you're not using it because you have certain assumptions about AI, I think it's, it's time to challenge those assumptions and see what the technology can do today. Cause it's, it is something different. Like it is, this is game changing. Absolutely. I've actually just thought of one final thing I wanted to ask you about that wasn't on my notes, but I don't know if you saw this thing a while ago now where I think it's more like radio AI or something like that, but essentially it took like all of the footage you can find of Joe Rogan and Steve Jobs on the internet. And then it created this fake conversation between the two that sounds like incredibly realistic. And like, this yeah. is comes back to this big thinking, right? Because if we want to really bring um, a piece of content to life, could we get our CEO, like we've got all the recordings of him speaking. Can we then use the AI to actually feel like he's talking to us um, with this with this topic? Like, I guess is that the kind of thing you're thinking of when you when you hear like think big and be open minded? Yeah, uh, of course, that specific one might um, uh, <clears throat> linger on certain ethical conversations as well about about AI. But but certainly, like when it comes to like we've all seen like uh, the mid journey AI um, create this 
phenomenal pictures that you, you cannot tell the difference from real photos and 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 what has been created by Midjourney. Um, I saw one, and there was one that blew up this weekend with with Trump, uh, President Trump being arrested, um, and what that would. So Mid Journey would just create photos of what that would look like, and it just looks super, super real. Um, so what I think, I mean, if we think we're trying to think about something positive that these could be used for, but basically, I think we're not far away from having technology where you can in L and D where you can prompt the AI uh, to give it all the context it needs, all the data points it needs. Uh, and what you want as the output, and it will create the whole training for you. Um, and you will have something very, very close to the finished product uh, with you know, perfect design, perfect you know pedagogy throughout the training. And you have you know your job is to verify and to prompt it correctly rather than uh, create it yourself. Perfect. That's a great uh, point to finish on, I think, Philip. If people want to get in touch, are you happy for them to reach out to you on on LinkedIn? Yeah, absolutely. Just um, ping me on LinkedIn if you have any further questions or just would like to have a conversation about anything, Yeah, especially. Perfect. Cool. So yeah, that'll all be in the show notes as well, which will go out by email or if you're listening to recording, it will be in the description as well. So you can connect with Philip. Uh, if you want to connect with me or learn more about how now, you find that in the description as well. And as I said at the start, a reminder that if you want to get the best lessons from the podcast so far, we have them all in one guide at gethownow.com forward slash disrupt. And you can download that for free today. So uh, thanks everyone for joining us and Philip, massive pleasure speaking to you. So uh, thanks for taking the time as well.